deeper I searched, the more troubling things I found. The best lead, the best evidence, the best witness was blown off. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. In 2018, it was reported there was a dramatic rise in the number of cases of demonic possession. For many of the most disturbing cases, Mother Carlos Martins was often summoned. I have seen things. Very evil things. I believe you to go in the name of Christ. I'm not leaving. We've been together too long. Listen to The Exorcist Files on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fans of the hit TV show Scandal can now revisit every episode on Unpacking the Toolbox, a Scandal Rewatch podcast, hosted by the cast members behind Quinn Perkins and Huff. So, gladiators, grab some Getty's Burger and relive Scandal's most iconic OMG moments. We would be in like 110 degrees in a wool coat. Yeah. I mean, the chafing that was going on in my pencil skirts, <laughs> I deserve all the acting awards, people. <laughs> Listen to Unpacking the Toolbox, a Scandal Rewatch podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it is August, August 28th, 2020 at approximately 4.02 p.m. Special Agent Scott Dahlstrom with Special Agent uh, Byron Mitchell, uh, CHS for meet with uh, Zebedias. Hall. Thank you. You can hear this. I put it in my front pocket, right? Yeah. It's late afternoon on a warm day in Denver, Colorado. It's drizzling outside. And Michael Adam Windecker II, or Mickey, as he prefers, is sitting in the back seat of an FBI car. Two federal agents are with him. And one of them, FBI Special Agent Scott Dahlstrom, has just handed Mickey a small hidden camera. Mickey turns the camera to his face, shooting from an unflattering angle below his chin. You can see Mickey's thin red mustache and scraggly goatee that's turning gray. He's propped his large sunglasses on his forehead, and he's looking straight down into the tiny camera lens. Mickey is not ready for his close-up. Video look good? Yep. Yeah, cancel. Not as handsome as that kid. Mickey points to someone outside, walking past the car, and then he opens the car door to leave. All right, see you guys The FBI agents tell him to remember his instructions, which were given to him before the camera started recording. Yep, I got it. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Mickey then walks to his car, the silver hearse, and places the FBI's camera on the passenger seat. Mickey looks down toward the camera and addresses the FBI agents, who are watching the live feed remotely. Mickey has good reason to feel patriotic in this moment. The FBI has signed him up as an informant, or, in the FBI's term of art, a confidential human source. And Mickey's getting paid thousands of dollars every few weeks. Cash. And Mickey, he's got a very specific assignment from his employers at the FBI. Go after his new friend, 
the young black activist Seth Hall, and find a way to bring federal charges against him. As the song ends, Mickey again looks down toward the FBI camera. I'm Trevor Aronson. From Western Sound and iHeart Podcast. Episode three Black Identity Extremism. So, to come right out and say it, Mickey Windecker wasn't a badass Antifa warrior after all, as activists like Zeb Hall had thought. He was an informant, a snitch, working for the FBI. Which seems to go against everything Mickey claims to be, right? Remember his little life rule? I have an old biker saying which is called, fuck the three Ps. The politicians, the press, and the police. It's just the way it is. Fuck the three Ps. Yeah. Turns out, that's bullshit. Fuck the two Ps. Maybe. Because this Mickey guy, he's in bed with the police. And the cops are not only helping him, they're paying him. Today, the FBI has more than 15,000 registered informants. And in the summer of 2020, Mickey is one of them. That conversation you heard in the last episode, when Mickey and Zeb were talking about training at Zeb's apartment, Mickey, on his own initiative, had secretly recorded the whole thing and delivered it to the FBI, apparently in the hopes of getting hired on as an informant. I need your help. You're awfully brutal on that part. Well, here's the thing. You have, and that's where I'm coming around to this, you have to decide where, what you're going to do. You know, I can't sit here and tell you, oh yeah, you should totally like blow up rich neighborhoods and shoot the white people in the neighborhood. You know, uh, and uh, or burn the federal courthouse down and shit like that. That's something I can't tell you. This recording ended up being Mickey's audition tape for the FBI. The official explanation for how Mickey Windecker became an informant can be found in FBI reports, internal investigation reports focused on racial justice demonstrators in Denver. These reports aren't public, and the FBI didn't intend to have them out there. Maybe not ever. They were provided to me, along with Mickey's undercover recordings, by someone who is deeply concerned about the FBI surveillance and infiltration of black activist groups. According to the FBI's reports, Mickey had returned to Denver after being a volunteer fighter with the Peshmerga, the Kurdish military force in Iraq that was fighting the Islamic State, or ISIS. Mickey told the FBI, and I'm quoting here from the report, that he found a sense of purpose and honor there, and made an oath to always fight against threats, both foreign and domestic. War with ISIS, Kurdish troops in a frontline battle with an enemy that took their land. Mickey was among dozens of Americans who volunteered to fight for the Peshmerga. With them, a half dozen Americans, veterans of the war in Iraq, back as volunteers. Once back in Denver, Mickey started participating in the protests following George Floyd's death, and he saw what was, in his view, a new domestic threat. 
Mickey said he witnessed protesters damaging property and threatening violence. So Mickey started providing information to police in the Denver area. Local police there then introduced him to the FBI as part of something known as the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is a partnership between local cops and the FBI. Every major metropolitan region in the United States has a Joint Terrorism Task Force, or JTTF. Mickey's motivation for being an informant was, and again, I'm quoting from an internal FBI report, to fight terrorists. And Mickey believed that, quote, people who participate in violent civil unrest are terrorists. So Mickey, the big bad ISIS hunter just back from Iraq, now has a new target, racial justice protesters whom he considers terrorists. You want to know something? It wasn't just Mickey. Almost the entire FBI thought this way too. More after the break. Levitations, vomiting, strange voices. Have you ever wondered if the stories about exorcism are true? He definitely has something going on. It's primal. And if they are true, how can one protect themselves from these dark forces? Hey, Celinda. Charlie. That thing is back. I see it. These are the questions we posed to renowned exorcist Father Carlos Martins, who agreed to open his case files to the public for the first time. Tell me who you are. The one you won't get out. My name is Father Carlos Martins. I'm an exorcist. I have seen things. Very evil things. No, I'm not dead! Things that I wish were true. Oh, Forget what you think you know about exorcism. Listen to The Exorcist Files on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast investigating the mysterious disappearance and brutal, unsolved murder of Tammy Zawicki. They just kept telling us from the beginning, she'll, she'll be back, she'll be back. We had no clue where she was. Didn't know where to do it. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I just had not really thought about anything except finding her. Tammy's story shocked the nation. There was no resolution. Nothing was ever zeroed in on. The deeper I searched, the more troubling things I found. There was a lot of physical evidence that had never been analyzed. My name is from the FBI at a job in Missouri. The best lead, the best evidence, the best witness was blown off. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. This is going to sound like Inside the Box Bar. I'm journalist Tadon Morton in my podcast, City of the Rails. I plunge into the dark world of America's railroads, searching for my daughter, Ruby, who ran off to hop trains. I'm just like stuck on this train, not knows where I'm going to end up, and I jump. Following my daughter, I found a secret city of unforgettable characters living outside society, off the grid, and on the edge. I was in love with the lifestyle of the freedom, this community. No one understands who we truly are. The rails made me question everything I knew about motherhood, history, and the thing we call the American dream. It's the last message of American freedom. Everything about it is extreme. You're either going to die, or you can have this incredible rebirth and really understand who you are. 
Come with me to find out what waits for us in the city of the rails. Listen to City of the Rails on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or cityoftherails.com. FBI reports about Mickey's work as an informant refer to racial justice demonstrators as anti-government extremists, which is one of the ideologies the FBI classifies as domestic terrorism. During the Trump administration, the FBI and the Justice Department came up with a new catch-all category to define a type of domestic terrorism from Black Americans. They called it Black Identity Extremism, a new and rising form, in the FBI's view, of anti-government extremism. It's a great question. What is a Black identity extremist? I think we're all trying to figure that out. Nobody knows, in part because it doesn't exist. This is racial justice activist Malkia Devich-Surreal speaking on the radio and television program Democracy Now! during the first year of the Trump administration. It's a term fabricated by the FBI, constructed, and it has a history. I mean, for a very long time, for many decades in this country, probably centuries, the FBI has criminalized Black dissent. In 2017, the FBI's counterterrorism division released a 12-page intelligence report that claimed Black identity extremists were motivated by police brutality to target law enforcement officers with violence and even murder. The FBI's theory was that racial justice activists had become radicalized following a police officer's fatal shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, which sparked weeks of violent clashes between protesters and police and brought international attention to the Black Lives Matter movement. Using the same tactical getup and the same weaponry we've come to expect in urban warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan, Police in Ferguson, Missouri, once again had to put down and head off violence. The 2017 FBI report inspired by the events in Ferguson says, quote, Black identity extremist perceptions of police brutality against African Americans spurred an increase in premeditated, retaliatory lethal violence against law enforcement and will very likely serve as justification for such violence. The FBI's evidence for this theory of rising Black political violence was pretty thin resting on a series of a half dozen crimes committed by Black Americans over a three-year period that had no apparent connection with one another and no unifying political ideology. It talks about Black activism against police violence and police racism, even though it says purported police <laughs> uh, uh, violence. It's, it's, it somehow is, it isn't clear that that's uh, a real thing. It was a sign of somebody being a Black identity extremist. This is Michael German, a former FBI undercover agent. German regularly testifies before Congress about FBI policies and practices. And what you saw in that report was, you know, six incidents of crimes that were unrelated to one another over a three-year period. These six people didn't know each other. The crimes weren't related. There was nothing similar about them but their Black identity. And that's why they called it a Black identity movement, that it was assuming that any black activist who was protesting police violence and police racism was part of a violent movement to overthrow the, the government or to kill police. Again, this report was released just a few years before the George Floyd protests in 2020. The revelation that the FBI had come up with a black identity extremism category for domestic terrorism was met with widespread criticism in the news media and on Capitol Hill particularly given that Americans at the time 
we're seeing increasing violence from white supremacists and other far-right groups. Many have also noted the FBI memo was dated August 3rd, only a few days before the deadly white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where white supremacist Ku Klux Klan members and neo-Nazis killed an anti-racist protester, Heather Heyer, and injured dozens more. In response to the controversy that they had created, the FBI came up with the term racially motivated violent extremism, bundling together into a single category violence from both white supremacists and so-called black identity extremists. This new category combines incidents involving white supremacists with a new uh, category that we've discussed before uh, called black identity extremists. And so that's really problematic to me. In 2019, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey questioned the FBI director, Christopher Wray, about this. When did the FBI eliminate the white supremacist category in favor of that racially motivated violent extremism category? One of the points that we've tried to emphasize to our folks across all of these vectors is that we only investigate violence. We don't investigate extremism. We don't investigate ideology. We don't investigate rhetoric. It doesn't matter how repugnant, how abhorrent, or whatever it is. And so what we have tried to do by our recategorization is make clear that it's about the violence, not about the ideology. Director Ray then disclosed, for the first time, that the FBI had abandoned the term black identity extremism. Forgive me, this is news to me. So you do no, you no longer use the, the, the black identity extremism. That's no more. That right. category, that's great. That's great news. So nobody's being surveilled or investigated on the black identity extremism. We don't use we don't use that terminology anymore. We don't use that terminology anymore, Ray said. But he didn't answer the other part of Senator Booker's question. Were people still being surveilled and investigated and suspected of being black identity extremists? And the answer to that question was, and is, yes. The work of Mickey Windecker is perhaps the clearest example of this type of investigation by the FBI. Back in Denver, the FBI had no reason to suspect that racial justice activists were ready to step over the line toward political violence and terrorism. The FBI, using Mickey, started infiltrating these groups anyway and started dropping not so subtle hints to anyone willing to listen. Hey, you want to get involved in violence? Let me know. I'm your guy. Like this from Mickey in Denver. I don't want it to be where I'm pressuring you, like, oh, yeah, you should totally, you know, blow up the fucking governor's house. It's, 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 it's. If it's what you want to do, then you know, I have to make sure that's what you want to do. It sounds absurd, right? One of these racial justice protesters is going to blow up the governor's mansion? But to the FBI, this wasn't absurd. It seemed possible. It seemed real. That's because inside the FBI, agents all the way to the top saw the racial justice protests as another 9-11 waiting to happen. Yeah, another 9-11. In the summer of 2020, as racial justice demonstrations broke out around the country, top officials at the FBI in Washington, D.C. saw the seeds of terrorism. David Bowditch, the FBI's deputy director, the second in command, sent an internal memo to his top aides that compared these demonstrations to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. When 9-11 occurred, our folks did not quibble 
about whether there was danger ahead for them, Bowditch wrote. They ran head-on into peril. In the memo, Bowditch described the racial justice demonstration throughout the country as a national crisis whose violent protesters were highly organized. That the FBI would see the world and these protests through a prism of terrorism is perhaps understandable in context. The 9-11 attacks transformed the FBI, and counterterrorism became the agency's top priority. There's a concept of cognitive bias, known as the law of the instrument, or Maslow's hammer, after the famous American psychologist Abraham Maslow. He wrote in 1966, I suppose it is tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail. So you have this agency full of hammers, and you have the guy at the very top, President Trump, almost every day in speeches and on Fox News, saying that there are nails all over the country, just waiting to be hammered. The violence and vandalism is being led by Antifa and other radical left-wing groups. And it was also frustrating for me to see how ably Usually that's not a term that you use when you're referencing former President Trump. This is former FBI agent Michael German again. But how ably he was able to make this boogeyman out of Antifa, you know, this concept. And how clever it was that he wasn't using the full term anti-fascist. If you're saying that your enemy is anti-fascism, that says a lot about you, right? uh, but by using this handle, Antifa, when really what he was focused on was Black Lives Matter rallies, right? That it was like, okay, I'm, I can't say Black Lives Matter is a problem, but I think it was very clever the way they were able to, to use that term to justify a much more violent law enforcement response. Amid this Antifa scare, even what we knew publicly at the time about the federal government's response to the Black Lives Matter movement was shocking. The Justice Department charged hundreds of people with felonies and misdemeanors for their roles in First Amendment protected demonstrations. CBS News has confirmed Attorney General Bill Barr is encouraging U.S. attorneys nationwide to seek federal charges against violent protesters even when state charges could apply. The Department of Homeland Security deployed agents dressed in military-style uniforms even abducted some demonstrators off the streets. Since their arrival, federal agents wearing military-style gear and sometimes driving unmarked vans have unleashed tear gas into crowds, rounded up and detained protesters, and even shot one man in the head with a non-lethal round, causing serious injury. There is new information tonight on how National Guard planes were used to monitor Black Lives Matter protests. And military spy planes were deployed above cities nationwide to monitor protesters. Including one over a suburb just outside of Sacramento. But throughout this period, it was unclear how exactly the FBI, the nation's most powerful and influential law enforcement agency, was responding to the racial justice demonstrations. By the time the racial justice demonstrations broke out nationwide in 2020, the FBI, thanks to the war on terror, had recruited an army of informants, a warrantless mass surveillance apparatus that could monitor phone calls, digital communications and footprints. The FBI also created a new type of investigation called an assessment that did not require what's known as a criminal predicate, which basically just means a reasonable suspicion that a crime is occurring. With an assessment, an FBI agent can open an investigation on just about anyone or just about 
any reason. Well, if the agent asserts their own impression that what they're doing is designed to protect the national security or solve crime, they're good to go. Again, Michael German, the former FBI agent. And with these investigations, a lot of very intrusive tools are authorized, uh, including physical surveillance and and uh, use of grand jury subpoenas to get subscriber information. But most alarming to me, recruiting and tasking informants. And so here's the FBI in the summer of 2020, seeing racial justice demonstrations nationwide. Inside FBI headquarters in Washington, higher-ups believe some of these demonstrators could be linked to a domestic extremist ideology they've termed black identity extremism, or as federal agents now prefer to say publicly, racially motivated violent extremism. All these things seem to create a situation where the FBI could see the protests not as First Amendment protected activity, but as threats to national security. And that's when I heard about Mickey Windecker, his silver hearse, his mountain of guns, and his hidden camera. More after the break. Motherfucker, something else. Levitations, vomiting, strange voices. Have you ever wondered if the stories about exorcism are true? He definitely has something going on. It's primal. And if they are true, how can one protect themselves from these dark forces? It's so enough. Charlie. That thing was there. I see it. These are the questions we posed to renowned exorcist Father Carlos Martins, who agreed to open his case files to the public for the first time. Tell me who you are. The one you won't get out. The one you can't. My name is Father Carlos Martins. I am an exorcist. I have seen things. Very evil things. No, I won't! Things that I wish were true. Forget what you think you know about exorcism. Listen to The Exorcist Files on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast investigating the mysterious disappearance and brutal, unsolved murder of Tammy Zawicki. They just kept telling us from the beginning, she'll, she'll be back, she'll be back. We had no clue where she was. Didn't know where we were going. Uh, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I just had not really thought about anything except finding her. Tammy's story shocked the nation. There was no resolution. Nothing was ever zeroed in on. The deeper I searched, the more troubling things I found. There was a lot of physical evidence that had ever been the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite show. Okay, okay, okay. I'm journalist Del Morton, and my podcast, City of the Rails. I plunged into the dark world of America's railroads, searching for my daughter, Ruby, who ran off the hot train. We stuck on the train, now that's where I'm going to end up, and I jumped. 
Following my daughter, I found the secret city of unforgettable characters living outside society, off the grid and on the edge. I was in love with the lifestyle and the freedom, this community. No one understands who we truly are. The rails made me question everything I knew about motherhood, history, and the thing we call the American dream. It's the last vestige of American freedom. Everything about it is extreme. You're either going to die, or you can have this incredible rebirth and really understand who you are. Come with me to find out what waits for us in the city of the rails. Listen to City of the Rails on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or any or cityoftherails.com. So the FBI reports concerning Mickey Windecker's work as an informant raise a lot of questions and concerns. It's clear from these reports that FBI agents did not have a predicate or a reasonable suspicion that any crime was occurring. Nothing to justify opening an investigation of any particular person in the Denver area. Instead, all the FBI had from Mickey's information was that there were protests in Denver and some of these had become violent and destructive. This wasn't exactly proprietary information, of course. The local news in Denver was reporting on this nearly every day during the summer of 2020. But each of the last four days has turned into this. Tear gas, pepper rounds, rocks and bottles in the air, smashed glass, fires. But that information, that there were protests and some were violent, seemed to be enough for the FBI to justify signing up Mickey as an informant and secretly placing him inside Denver's racial justice movement. The FBI didn't have any evidence to suggest someone specific was committing violence or even was about to. Really, the only thing they had was ideology. The FBI was concerned that racial justice protesters were using heated rhetoric. Some of this talk suggesting violence, sure, but nonetheless protected by the First Amendment. Among the speakers at the Denver protests was Zebedias Hall. We need to burn this motherfucker down, and we need to get explosives, according to the FBI's internal reports. But this wasn't secret squirrel information either. Zeb was known to say such things in front of large crowds, and many of his acid tongue speeches were publicly live streamed for anyone to watch. Like this one, which you can go watch on YouTube right now if you want. I don't give a fuck about the cops, Zeb says, standing on the steps of the Colorado State Capitol. Because fuck them. That's why. By signing up Mickey as an informant and opening up an investigation of Denver's racial justice protests without a clear purpose, the FBI creates a perverse incentive structure for Mickey. Here's Michael German, the former FBI agent. My way of looking at it is I would rather have an FBI undercover agent in there who, who at least knows what the law is and not that agents don't violate the law, but rather than an informant whose reliability is much lower, whose incentives are very different, right? If Mickey wants to keep getting paid by the FBI, he needs to build a criminal case, no matter what it takes. They're trying to get paid and they get paid you know, by proving a case. And if they don't prove, if they come in and say, hey, I was part of this this uh, protest movement and I didn't see any crime, they don't stay on the payroll, right? So their incentive is to manufacture crime. This is a systemic problem for the FBI. Informants who are working for money or for leniency on criminal charges often create 
or encourage criminal conduct. They have every incentive to do so. I've asked a lot of FBI agents about this issue in the past, and most have offered to me the same defense. There's no other way to catch the bad guys. The FBI needs these informants. In fact, there's an FBI expression about informants. If you want to catch the devil, you have to go to hell. In other words, informants can't be choir boys. If you're going to infiltrate a group of criminals, you need your own criminal, someone who can play the part and fit seamlessly into the organization. That's the business that the FBI is in, employing bad guys to catch other bad guys. As a result, many, if not most, of the FBI's 15,000 informants are people with criminal records, sketchy paths, and plenty of reasons not to be viewed as credible. The FBI knows this, of course. And as a result, informants are often subjected to lie detector tests to make sure they are not deceiving federal agents. The FBI also has informants secretly record conversations so that the government's criminal prosecution won't rest entirely on the unreliable words of an unscrupulous informant. But while informants are assets for the FBI, they're also ongoing liabilities. Informants, incentivized by thousands of dollars in cash payments, have been known to spend months with targets before any recordings begin, essentially grooming them and resulting in questions of entrapment much later at trial. In addition, the FBI has to allow these informants to commit crimes while on the FBI payroll. Remember, a criminal's got to do criminal things, right? During a single four-year period from 2011 to 2014, the FBI permitted informants to violate the law more than 20,000 times. And that's just the number of times the FBI has explicitly permitted informants to commit crimes, presumably in order to maintain their covers or further an investigation. What's not calculated and reported by the FBI is the number of times they turn a blind eye to informants who break the law without permission. At this point, you might be asking, is there a limit? Are some informants' crimes so awful they shouldn't be enlisted as FBI informants? Or maybe you're asking, do some informants have such a long history of deception that they just can't be trusted not to lie to FBI agents? Judging by Mickey Windecker's FBI file, the answer is no. There are no limits. When they signed up Mickey as an informant, FBI agents in Denver knew he had a rap sheet. Arrests in Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Florida. He'd been arrested for assault, sexual assault, failing to register as a sex offender, menacing, unlawful possession of a weapon, among other charges. The FBI knew about these charges from doing a background check, a background check that FBI agents included in their files related to Mickey's work as an informant. I don't know if the FBI pulled and reviewed the actual police and court files to get the gory details about Mickey's arrest, but I did. And I also found some recordings of Mickey talking about some of these incidents. In the sexual assault case, Mickey had a sexual relationship with a minor. Mickey actually talks about this in one of the videos I found. And while I was 19 years old, I decided that there was a place called Yola uh, Grandma. I think that's the name of the place. I met this girl. She kind of seemed mature at the time. So um, I went to the roller rink and I met her. And she was talking. She's like, hey, here's my number. She's like, you should come hang out and all that. And I was like, all right, cool. Mickey said he didn't know the girl was underage when they had sex. And for the record, while Mickey claimed he was 19 years old when this incident occurred, court records show he was 20. And my dad had a friend who was an investigator, 
and pulled up her name and it turned out that she was 14 actually never turned 15 and when my dad let me know came back in front of me but was like hey this is really what's going on i was like oh okay we're done so i called her up on my house phone i was like hey i can't fuck with you no more i don't want to be around you because you're not a day so i cut her off mickey was able to plead the case down to third degree sexual assault a misdemeanor several people have filed restraining orders against mickey including a man i found through my reporting he contacted me and said that he was hired by mickey to break into my home this guy asked me not to use his name out of fear of retribution from mickey he described how he was going through a child custody battle with a woman named Vicky. And there's just some, some level of you know, surveillance and tap my phone and put cameras in my house. Um, just a tremendous amount of craziness. Um, so we did a quick Google search and um, obviously find out that you know this person had this background um, and I immediately contacted the police and the judge. But what's also troubling in Mickey's court files is his history of allegedly breaking the law while also pretending to be a police officer. In one example, he allegedly showed someone a fake police badge while asking questions. In another, Mickey stuck a gun in someone's face and claimed to be a police officer looking for a suspect. That incident resulted in a felony conviction, and Mickey served two years in a Colorado prison as a result in 2002-2003. And I think that's where Mickey learned the value of being a snitch. While in prison, he was approached about killing someone. But instead of committing the murder for hire, Mickey went to the cops, became a prison informant, helping to win convictions against the people who tried to hire him. That's the earliest example I could find in records of Mickey working as an informant. Generally speaking, criminals work as informants primarily for two reasons, either to make money or to receive leniency following an arrest. Undoubtedly, Mickey was motivated at various times by both those reasons. But for him, there appears to be an even deeper psychological impulse. Mickey saw himself as an anti-hero, someone who operates in the gray areas of the law, delivering his own brand of justice. Mickey wore a chain around his neck, and hanging from that chain was a medallion the logo for the Punisher, a vigilante from the Marvel Comics universe who fights crime with an obscene level of violence. He literally thought he was the Punisher. Anything we've seen, the Punisher logo was on it. And he would always wear the Punisher necklace, even when he took a shower or a bath, never came off. Just like a big kid, in the worst way, in the worst way. It's awful. That's in the next episode. This is Trojan Hearse, season one of Alphabet Boys. Alphabet Boys is a production of Western Sound and iHeart Podcast. The show is... Ladies and gentlemen, before that, we have the following story in Ohio. And it's bad. You know, last night, the governor of Pennsylvania was saying people in his state were showing symptoms. And I was reading also this morning how folks in Ohio, in this area of Palestine, are talking about rashes on their skin. All of the animals in the area die. The fish in the water die. I mean, this thing was serious. And 
to me, they should tell everything about what happened, everything about the chemicals that people are inhaling, people are reporting respiratory problems, they are reporting burning eyes, and some people did manage to get out. Um, you know, it's really hard to tell people to leave. Now, it's okay if you have the financial means to get out of there. You know, you're going to have to use your own funding. The state is not picking up that money that you're using. So, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have good paying jobs or they just simply don't have the money to relocate. So it is bad. It is really bad. And I just don't know. It, it, it's a major cleanup. If you can just look at this and tell the cleanup is going to be major. You don't know what chemicals got in the ground. You don't know what the air quality is there. You don't know if the water is safe for these people to even use or is it just get out of there and and don't go back you know it, it is so much to consider right now but i have a video of governor mike dewine uh talking about the situation and i'll be right back with my commentary northern southern southern is responsible for this problem and we fully expect them uh, to live up to what the ceo committed to me and that is that they will pay for it uh, if they don't we've got an attorney general here that will file a lawsuit so look, they're responsible for this they did it um you know this is a, a you know the impact on this community is huge um, the, not just the physical uh, problem that might be caused, but uh, the, the inconvenience, uh, the, the terror, um, many, many things. So yes, uh, you know, we've already seen lawsuits filed. I'm sure there'll be more lawsuits filed. Uh, but, you know, my ob objective is to uh, do everything we can to get this cleaned up uh as, as quickly as quickly as we can you know i understand people's skepticism and i understand uh their anger and if, you know if i lived in the community i would be angry too uh the railroad caused this problem uh, they're gonna be held accountable okay you know this is definitely an environmental catastrophe for real, you know? So the residents, many of them are still there, but they are afraid because of, you know, the air quality and everything being so bad. It was a release of vinyl chloride and it quickly killed any livestock that was there or any animals that were there. They said that all got wiped out. They are afraid of the water, the air, the soil, surfaces, and residents, they just packed into a gym on Wednesday for a community meeting. And they said the village of 5,000 people, there are still people still there, but they are afraid of, you know, cancer, 
or any type of respiratory problems that they can develop. And they were asking at this Wednesday meeting, is it okay to still be here? Are our kids safe? Are the people safe? Is there a future for this community? You know, so rightfully so, they're asking a lot of questions. The event was hosted at East Palestine, according to officials, and there was supposed to be someone from Norfolk Southern there, but the company, which said it had hoped to provide updates on cleanup efforts and results from air and water tests, they backed out of the meeting. So these folks, you know, got all this growing concern on their health and they're not getting answers from Norfolk Southern, who, like the governor said, they are largely responsible for this uh, disaster. So, you know, the people were upset and they were yelling, where is Norfolk Southern? Where are these people? So residents questioned how safe their village is and the validity, uh, the validity of the air and water test and how the potential long-term health effects will be monitored in the community. And let me tell y'all something, whenever you have a disaster like this, the only thing these companies are looking to do is getting out of the whole thing. That's all, they're not looking out for those folks. They're gonna be shocked. They're not going to look out for them. They're going to look out for their wallet and what they can do so that they are not sued. But in my opinion, no matter what promise Norfolk Southern make, I think the state should still sue them. They are responsible for this disaster. You know, it uprooted people's lives. Mm -mm. So the locals are now expressing distrust of these officials account and their anger so they think they're not even being told the truth and the meeting came just a day uh, when the governor's office announced state officials again determined water coming from the municipal system was safe to drink i wouldn't believe nothing from this government I'm just sorry, I wouldn't. Test results from five wells that supply the system covered by steel casing showed no contamination. All right, so let's say that's true. What about the ground these people are walking on? The soil, the I mean, just the ground in general. You know, I don't know. I'm just telling y'all I wouldn't trust nothing these folks say. I wouldn't trust a thing. Still, the State Environmental Protection Agency encourages residents to get water from private wells that get and get the water tested because those wells may be closer to the surface than the municipal wells, according to the governor's office. What a nightmare. The evacuation order was lifted on February 8th five days after the derailment, after the earlier air and water sample results led officials to deem the area safe. Yeah, but you know what? These are always officials that don't even live in the area. 
Yeah, it's just like the Jackson, Mississippi thing. The people in charge are not even in that area, but they're going to tell you what's safe and what's not safe. I don't trust these folks. Oh, hell no. So the people want answers. I want answers. My greatest concern is my citizens feel that um, what I care about and what I don't about anything else. So one person said they live two blocks away from the train tracks. And they're talking about how they're concerned and they have small children and I don't blame them. You know, and how many of them are living with anxiety right now and wondering if it's even worth it to stay in that town. So this was a 100 car freight train that derailed on the 3rd of February carrying hazardous material, including vinyl chloride. Wow. So they're saying that this particular chemical is known to cause cancer, attack the liver, and can also affect the brain. Oh, hell no. Well, then what about the cleanup? What are the details on the cleanup? And my question, if this happened on the third, how come we're not hearing about cleanup in that area? You better get them guys out there with the hazmat suits and get the area cleaned up. So the governor. Norfolk Southern is responsible for cleanup at the site, according to a February 10th notice sent to the company from the federal EPA. So what they want is a removal of the soil that has come under contract with contact with hazardous chemicals. Um, the contaminated soil and both the air and down to the surface. So they're just telling you everything they want cleaned up. Every time it rains, a flood of new contaminants will enter the ecosystem. So the railroad reopened the rail on the 8th after taking steps, including controlled release of toxic chemicals from certain cars. It has not yet known what significance or the impact of the soil that was not removed prior to the rail line reopening may have on surrounding areas. Oh, well, we don't know. You know, in this case, you are relying on um, your officials. So, yeah, you know, so they are concerned about what effect this is going to have on them in the long term. Mm -mm -mm. Wow. So, this uh, Norfolk Southern said on Wednesday that it was creating a $1 million charitable fund to, uh, to support East Palestine saying it was committed to the community today and in the future and you know, whatever to cause all these problems and 
all you want to give is $1 million. So um, one resident was saying that it hurts to even breathe. They're, they're in pain just breathing. And there was um, another family that was just visiting family. They came from out of town to visit when this whole thing happened. And they have developed a nagging headache that doesn't seem to go away. And they said, um, you know, they want, want to know if it's safe because it even hurts to breathe. So right now the air quality appear to be a source of headache and sore throats among or deaths of animals such as cats and chickens. Yeah, they said all the livestock around there died. And they are saying um, that the cause of the common symptoms are headache, eye irritation, nose irritation, etc. Guess what it says? Wow. The wreck and spill is blamed for thousands of dead fish. And of course, yeah, you can't touch the fish or the water at this point. How can you, you can't touch nothing. And they're talking about the water flows into the Ohio River. And the Ohio River is very large. And um, the chemicals are contaminant according to Ohio EPA agency, and they have tracked in real time and believe that the contaminants have moved about a mile per hour from Palestine all the way down the Ohio River. So y'all, this is really a tragedy, and I think it's far worse than what we're hearing. I think this thing, when it's all said and done, it is going to be, I just think these people are not going to be safe living there. I, I, that's just my opinion. I don't, I don't think I would stay there. But y'all, please tell me what you think about this video. Please leave your comment and subscribe. Don't forget to hit on the notification bell. And I'll see you on the next video. Peace, family. Ladies and gentlemen, here's two more that were at the Tyree Nichols beatdown and arrest. And these two sheriff deputies did not report the fact that they were on the scene. And they have since been suspended as of Wednesday. And they are suspended without pay. Two deputies at Tyree Nichols' arrest and beating have been suspended following investigation, County says. So they never told anybody they were at the scene and they never reported to a supervisor or anyone 
about the events that occurred. And apparently when they when they leave the scene, they're supposed to report that too. They didn't do nothing. And um, they failed to turn on their body cameras when they were on the scene. So two Shelby County Sheriff deputies who were at the scene of Tyree Nichols' deadly arrest in Tennessee last month violated department regulations and have been suspended for five days without pay. According to a news release, the Sheriff's Office obtained a CNN affiliate WHBQ. The suspension of both Shelby County deputies who were at the scene of Nichols' beatings by the Memphis police became effective Wednesday. The release reads, both deputies, Jeremy Watkins and Deputy John Tavius Bowers, were found to have failed to report to dispatch or their supervisors that they were on the scene. They failed to turn on their body cameras and record mode and failed to report the to, uh, dispatch that they were leaving the scene. The department said an investigative report obtained by WHBQ. Additionally, Watkins did not note in his daily log that he was on the scene. One of the reports said, because I had concerns about two deputies who appeared on the scene following the physical confrontation between police and Tyree Nichols, I ordered this internal investigation. Shelby County Sheriff Floyd Bonner Jr. said in a, in a, a news release. So they were there, y'all, and tried to act like they were never there. You know, and it just makes me wonder how many people were there. It's amazing how we haven't gotten a number of how many people were there. Apparently, a lot of people were there. Oh, mm -mm. So, our investigation was thorough and complete. I am satisfied with the discipline given to these deputies is appropriate and just. We must continue to maintain the highest standards of excellence for citizens of Shelby County through service, integrity, and accountability, which y'all don't have none of those things. For real, you don't have none of those things. The department previously announced in January that two deputies were at the scene were put on leave pending results of an investigation. CNN has reached out to Watkins and Bowers for comment. Nichols 29 was repeatedly punched, kicked by Memphis police during a traffic stop and arrested in Memphis on January 7th. Nichols required hospitalization after the arrest and died three days later. Five deputies, and you really should have uh, Preston Hemphill in there, and they are doing the best they can not to charge him. They are going above and beyond to make sure he never gets charged. But the family is pushing back, and they have gone up to the UN. You know, that was what Malcolm X wanted to do and report the things that are happening here in America and how, you know, these things just keep repeating itself over and over and nobody in a position of power is doing anything to stop it. 
So, you know, I don't blame them for going to the UN. I don't blame anybody. I'm not saying that somebody is going to help, but you really got to get outside of America to tell what's going on here. Because as long as you just keep talking within America, nothing is going to get done. These politicians are fully aware that we are getting mistreated. They are fully aware that we are being abused and killed out on these streets by the biggest gang in America called the police. And they know it. But they are content with us being the group that suffers the most. So therefore, they feel no need to correct or rectify or even do anything about it. Joe Biden, he just want to hire more cops. He's not talking about qualified immunity. He's not talking about accountability. He's not talking about nothing. But the same, we need to support the police, give the police more money and give the, put more police on the street. That's how he talks. And he's going to talk like that as long as he's a sitting president. And the CBC, no matter how many of us get killed and maimed out on these streets, they're not going to say nothing. They're not going to raise the issue. They're going to just sit back and watch, just like all the other politicians are just sitting there and watching. And, 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 and obviously, it must not be bothering them that much because they're not even trying to even fake the phone to act like they're even concerned. They're not even doing that. I mean, and look at what's going on during Black History Month. You got all of these people rising up trying to get rid of black history. And one of the states is James Clyburn's state, where it's against the law to teach African American studies. James Clyburn, and we haven't heard a thing from him about South Carolina. The CBC, they are the biggest sellouts on the planet. They have never helped us. And as we move forward into the future, they still won't be helping us. Y'all need to get rid of these people. I don't care how long they've been there. Y'all need to get rid of them. They ain't no damn good. But y'all, please tell me what you think about these two additional sheriff deputies that have been suspended for showing up on the scene where Tyree Nichols was getting beat down by the police and they tried not to even report that they were there. But you know what, it's easy to figure out because they gotta have GPS, uh, yeah, GPS. So if you got GPS, they can literally, you know, look online to see exactly where your whereabouts are. It's really not hard to piece that together. So they were stupid for showing up and then trying not to say anything about it. That's kind of silly. But y'all, please tell me what you think about this video. Please leave your comment and subscribe. Don't forget to hit on the notification bell and I'll see you on the next video. Peace, family.